Okay, this morning we're studying 2 Corinthians 3. We're in verse 9. And as usual, per usual, I want to begin with prayer. Ask God's blessing not only on our study of the Word, but on the entire service and on those that will be listening in. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to gather with Your beloved sons and daughters that You've joined us to. Thank You for Christian fellowship. Thank You, Lord, for the opportunity to grow in grace and knowledge of You through the study of Scripture, through prayer, through fellowship, and through communion. We pray for the saints of the diaspora, those who are scattered abroad but who listen to these recordings. We pray that You would bless them as well and that they may also receive the means of grace and that they might grow in faith and in sanctification. We ask You to help us. Uh, to study and to learn and to know and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we did talk about verse 9, uh, verse 9 on uh, last Sunday, but we had not done the cross-references. And I think there's probably some good ones. So um, do you have a Bible in, in that little device there? <laughs> okay, Exodus 19, 12 through... Uh, I think it's either 17 or 19, you can tell, probably. Exodus 19, 12 to, I can't read my writing, either 17 or 19. And then uh, Rick, Jeremiah 23, 6, Lincoln, Romans 1, 17 and 18, and Michelle, Romans 3, 21 to 23, and Dale, Romans 8, 3 and 4, Robert, Romans 10, 3 through 10. Well, we better quit there. That's a lot of verses. Let me read the verse that these are cross-references for. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Now, to risk redundancy, we've mentioned this every week here as we've been studying 2 Corinthians, but there's a, a, a lesser to greater argument going on, and it's a very extended one, because... Um, there's this uh, logical construction, if even more, if much more. So the contrast is between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, as we've already said. But we're going to look up some cross-references now to help us understand the distinctions between the Old and New Covenant. Uh, we want to understand the superiority of the New Covenant, but we don't want to belittle the, the value of what God did in the Old Covenant in order to prepare the world, Israel and the world for the new covenant. So Exodus 19:12 to 19. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Where that you do not go up in the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. How far? Uh, go at least to 17. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And when... And when and Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Okay, so they anyhow the the, the point was 
there was glory. Okay, the mountain was glory. Showed the glory of God. There was a, an epiphany, a, a, a theophany, I should say, a manifestation of God that could be seen physically with people's eyes, and they could see and hear. But because of their sinfulness, they couldn't even touch the mountain where God was, lest they die. So they really showed a need for a mediator and for a plan of atonement so that they could be made uh, um, able to go into the presence of God, which is something they didn't have. So one of the key differences is that under the old covenant we had that problem, but under the new covenant there's going to be a way into the holy place that they didn't have in the old covenant. So the next verse was Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord of our righteousness. Yeah, Jehovah or Yahweh Tiskenu, God our righteousness. Now this is a new covenant of promise in Jeremiah 23, 6. Because notice God is our righteousness. So rather than people becoming righteous by uh, being able to keep all the stipulations of the old covenant, which they really couldn't, God Himself becomes our righteousness. Now you know how He did that. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And so Yahweh becomes our righteousness when He sends the righteous one to pay the penalty for sin and imputes, legally imputes His righteousness into our account. All right, that's absolutely essential. And um, any denial of that, which you see a lot in church history, is an attack against the gospel itself. Somebody emailed me, you know, I think I got an idea here. I don't like being, I can't see anybody. There we go. Somebody emailed me um, an article by Charles Finney. That talks about, I mean, I mean, an article by Phil Johnson rebuking Charles Finney. And, and, and Johnson's right. I've read Finney, and I, he was a terrible heretic. And, I, and it's unbelievable that nobody seems to know that. But Phil Johnson wrote a great article exposing Finney for the heretic he was, and it was very well done. And he said the same thing, that uh, Finney attacked the imputed righteousness of Christ, calling it legal fiction, in the same way the Roman Catholic Church did in the Council of Trent. And so an attack against the imputed righteousness of Christ is an attack against the gospel itself. And rather than imputed righteousness, what do they have? They have this infusion or this uh, uh, humans actually having the ability to obey God perfectly now and, and, and therefore being just because they are in fact just rather than declared just. So that issue is a gospel issue that is at the heart of our faith and it's the heart of what we believe. And whatever else is compromised, when we see that compromised, we have to stand up and fight. We have to be like Luther and say that this is where I stand. And the imputed righteousness of Christ cannot be compromised no matter what else anybody wants to do. Because otherwise we don't know God is our righteousness. All we know is we have to try harder. Okay, the next passage was uh, Romans 1, 17 and 18. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed for, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so there is, is Luther's verse, the just shall live by faith, and then the next verse talks about the wrath of God. So the implication is that this righteousness that's received by faith through the finished work of Christ is what rescues us from the wrath of God. Justification by faith and the avoidance of the wrath of God. Now we have Romans 3, 21 to 23. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, so there the passage tells us that this righteousness of God that we're talking about, and we're claiming right standing before God because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, was witnessed by the law and prophets. And so the passage that we read in the prophet, which says that in that day, that day of salvation, we'll call the Lord, the Lord our righteousness, that's a witness in the law of prophets of the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And then Romans, Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement for the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There it is again, substitutionary atonement. Romans 10, 3 through 10. Pay attention to this one as he's reading it. It's important. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or... Who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith, which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Yes. Go ahead, Keith. There's another passage I wanted to read in the Deuteronomy one. Yeah. Because this goes back to the law and to the exact um, references of what we're talking about, the law, glory of Moses, and the glory of Christ. Uh, in Deuteronomy 5, 24, it's Moses' final sermon to the people of Israel, and he goes, when they were talking about the same event, when they were witnessing God in the fire on the mountain, because you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and live? Just talking about the glory of Moses. And they say to Moses, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says, and then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. 
Now they're claiming they're going to obey the law. The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of the people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all they have spoken, asking for a mediator. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may go well with them and their sons forever. So that, 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 that's speaking of the exact issue. God yeah. knows they, they, they say they they're going to do it. Yeah. They're not going to do it. He knows he needs to give them a new heart. And, they need, and they need a mediator. And, and it's right there in Deuteronomy, yeah. Deuteronomy yeah. 5, right at the beginning. So Paul's claim is that this thing that was so not so difficult that's in heaven, you have to bring it back or in the depths of the sea, was done by Christ, that he made near what would have been impossible otherwise. He made it possible for people to come to God because of what he did by being raised from the dead. Uh, Keith, if you want to look up 2 Corinthians 5.21, Carla, Galatians 3.10, and Joanne, Philippians 3.9. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There again is imputed righteousness. So, this is impossible to miss. How can you have a Christianity with no blood atonement? How can you have Christianity without justification by faith? How can you have a, 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 a doctrine of salvation without any idea that there's a hell or God's judgment against sin? And if the whole world is going to get better and better and is heading toward paradise by processes already at work in history which is the claim of the emerging church, then why should we be concerned about these things? I, I, I don't know why you would do anything other than just go about your life and figure it's all going to work out. I don't even know why you'd bother being religious. Well, people are always going to be religious because it's their nature. I guess that's why. Okay, so then we had Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So that, that is a very important verse when we're going to rebut Finney and all of his theological followers. Because the doctrine of human ability, Finney's doctrine, that is rank heresy, Finney's doctrine was God will never ask, command us to do what we're not able to do. That was his legal axiom that he applied to all theology. That verse right there is a contradiction to that in no uncertain terms because it said, Cursed is he who does not abide under all of these things to do them. And what's Paul's logical conclusion? Therefore, everybody under them is cursed. What's the implication? Nobody can do them. If people could do them, then it wouldn't follow that everybody under them would be cursed. Logically, somebody can possibly have kept them and not been cursed. Okay? So Finney's axiom, his legal principle that he taught, which poisoned evangelicalism in America for 160 years to come, is a lie and it's a falsehood. And it's uh, uh, totally heretical because it's the doctrine of human ability. Now, there are some Finney's stepsons that aren't totally as heretical as he is, and I debated a couple of them by email lately. And what they don't get is that the gospel of human ability is not the same as the gospel of God's grace. All right? And, I, and so that's what I say. Well, what, do you, what makes you think that the Bible teaches the gospel of human ability? Well, we don't believe that. Well, so then you, 
you just go round and round with them. They just don't believe that God's grace is what causes salvation. They think it's caused by something in us that we do that sort of flips the starter switch, and then after that, God takes over. Okay, uh, Philippians 3.9. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You know what? That's so clear. That's so clear. Not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but a righteousness that comes from Christ based on faith. We're right before God because of what God did in Christ, not because of any other thing. And it's by faith, not by works or by religious activities. Let me quote Garland, and then we'll move on to verse 10. He says, For this reason, the new ministry is even more glorious. When the people of Israel sinned, Moses could valiantly attempt to intercede on their behalf, but was helpless to remove their guilt. Exodus 32, 31, 33. Or his own. He could not make them righteous. He was entrusted only with a ministry of the letter that specified crimes and stipulated the punishment. The law he gave Israel only results in curse and condemnation since Paul believed none could fully obey it. Remember? Galatians 3.10. In this sense, the law was transitory because God's purpose was not to condemn, but to save. Romans 3.21, which we read. God does not intend to bring judgment of death, but righteousness that leads to life. The new ministry of the Spirit makes this clear. The law demands obedience. The Spirit gives it. Romans 8.3, which we read. The law would eliminate sinners by sentencing them to death. The Spirit would illuminate them by revealing the glory of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the truth of God, 2 Corinthians 4.2, and the promise of the resurrection, 2 Corinthians 4.13-14. So there is your contrast between the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of life. The ministry was some glory, the ministry with greater glory. How much more do we have this glorious new covenant truth? Now let's go to verse 10. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.10, For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. Now, we've already alluded a couple of weeks ago to the Mount of Transfiguration, but we'll go back there. Um, it reminds me of another debate, and I like to put our discussions in the context of current theological debates. Why? Because it gives it, alt, um, um, uh, how would you say it, immediacy. It gives us a reason why it's important. Okay, in Paul's day, whoever was attacking justification by faith were his opponents, the Judaizers, the Galatian heretics. And so in whatever day we live, whoever is attacking this doctrine, we need to interact with just as sternly as Paul did in his own day because people need to know what they're dealing with and what the issues are. Okay, and I'm saying this is very important. Now let me shift gears. I'm going to talk about the emergent church now. I want to talk about the laughing revival. I got into a debate uh, about the validity of the Toronto blessing in the Pensacola revival. All right? And so, in my debate, and I was debating with somebody who was being trained at Fuller Seminary, I said, well, what, uh, um, what exactly is going on? Why do you, somebody need to go to Pensacola to meet God? Well... Uh, doesn't the gospel offer access to the throne of grace to all believers no matter where they are in the world? 
It isn't the only way into the holy place through the blood of Jesus and the, and the, the veil's been rent. So what are, what's going on in Pensacola that's adding anything to the gospel itself? And you know what his answer was? It's a theophany. This is a theophany. This is like Sinai. God came down in Pensacola, and when you go there, then you're going to see the glory of God. Now, let me make an application. This shows you how to make applications from Scripture. Let's, let's, let's do a, a, our own lesser to greater argument. All right? If the true... Let's just grant for the sake of argument. All right? We know that Sinai was a theophany. We don't know for sure uh, Pensacola was. These guys just said it was. All right? We know Sinai was a theophany because the Bible says it was. Let's just grant for the sake of discussion that Pensacola, uh, Florida is a mini-theophany. Which I don't believe. I think it's a delusion. But let's just say it was. If, if, here's our argument, if the theophany at Sinai that was indeed glorious was killing you and was a ministry of death and was superseded by so much greater glory that's available to any believer by faith under the new covenant, how much less is some supposed theophany in Pensacola that may not even be one? Why go back to what caused death? Why go back to looking for some glory that can be visibly seen when all it ever was when it did really exist was a ministry of death? And if you have the new covenant promise that if you believe the gospel, you have the righteousness of Christ, what are they adding? What is this, what is this experience adding to the gospel? What it's doing is detracting from the gospel, not adding to it. There's, uh, Bill has something to say here. So I think that what we have here, dear beloved, is a failure of faith. We're not seeing the glory of Christ in the light of the gospel because we can't see it with our physical eyes, so we, we assume it's a, a small thing, which is really an affront to God and to what he's done. But if we can go someplace on an airplane and see something happening that might be from God, then we think we come close to God. That's really not right. Okay. I, I went to uh, Pensacola, so I, I'm an eyewitness, and uh, they used music mysticism, altered states of consciousness, uh, and summoning uh, 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 spirits, in other words, spiritism. And there's a methodical pattern they used. There was uh, songs uh, that they used repeatedly over and over again throughout the years of this revival. And uh, you're basically being demonized. I, I witnessed the elders walk around after they received their anointing uh, by going in the front of the room. And, uh, and then they, they, they obtained some sort of power and then went out through the audience and laid hands on people. And I looked at, looked at one of them to see who was home upstairs, you know. And, uh, and the guy's eyes was cloudy, and, and it was another, another uh, being. Okay. That's that old flattering theology that Christ was only able to do his miracles after God anointed him. And you can receive that anointing too. I think they were a little heavy at <laughs> okay, thank you, Roger. <laughs> a little overdose on communion wine going on there. <laughs> well, that's a, well, again, we've taught about this stuff, so you all, are, if you've been here, have been very well taught and warned. The anointing 
The only uniquely anointed one under the new covenant is Jesus Christ. The word anointed in the Greek is Christos. It's where we get the name Christ. So the anointed one, Ha Christos, is the one, it says in Hebrews, who was anointed with the oil of joy above his brethren. Now, when it comes to Christians, it says in 1 John chapter 2, that you all have an anointing from the Holy One. So there's no other Christian more anointed than you are. Okay? And so you can't go somewhere. If they have special anointing, they're claiming to be Christ, which means that they're Antichrist. Uh, okay, you said that, that what you wanted to say? Scott was going to agree with me that that's the Antichrist, the one who claims a special anointing. And that's clearly taught in 1 John 2. That's why the people were warning. Anointed ones were saying, we have revelations you can't get from anywhere else. And it says, John says, no, don't, don't believe them. I'm warning you about those who are teaching you false doctrine, he says. And there's people claiming there's even revivals here in the Twin Cities that you go and you have an experience, and the experience will draw you closer to God. And the whole passages that we're reading right now refutes that as well. The true experience of Sinai, God coming down on a mountain, which we know is true, and experiencing God face to face, which is what they claimed in Deuteronomy, if the experience of God wasn't enough to save you, Actually, it might kill you. It said it was going to kill you, <laughs> exactly. if, you if you approached it and ended up the, the words that were spoken, they were, came under a curse. If that experience wasn't enough to save you and make you keep the law, because 40 days later, they went out and they were you know, making the, the golden calf. The experience itself isn't enough to keep you. What keeps you is faith. What keeps you is faith in Christ, which we don't see right now. Yeah, exactly. So what we have is a failure to see how badly we need a mediator. And the mediator is Christ and not anybody else, not some human. All right, Dick, if you could look up and read Mark 9, 2 through 8. We studied that at your home Bible study, so we should uh, be able to uh, address that. Let's look at the Mount of Transfiguration and see what claim is being made by Mark. Okay, this is very enlightening if you take a look at um, In narrative, and if you're taking the hermeneutics class, we talked about that, Ryan did, a narrative, a narrative is a story, but a theological narrative isn't just a story because people like stories. It's a story with a point. Why did Mark tell us about the Mount of Transfiguration? Because he has a point to make. Let's see what it is. Mark 9, 2 through 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer. For they became ter terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Okay. Wow. Now let's think about the implications. All right. They go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see the glory of God in the person of Christ. And here's Moses and Elijah. Now, Peter wanted to build three tabernacles. What was wrong with that? 
I mean, the implication was he said it because he was terrified. So Mark is saying it wasn't really the smartest thing to say. <laughs> All right. Now, what would be wrong with having, what's a tabernacle? Let's just go back up. You maybe read my article on this, but what's a tabernacle? In the Old Testament, what happened in the tabernacle? God came. God came. It was a tent of meeting. The tabernacles where God came and met the people. Now, what were the roles of Moses and Elijah under the Old Covenant? Yeah, they spoke for God. They brought God's power and glory to, to, to be seen on the face of the earth as ones that spoke for God. Now, what happened when they were on the mountain when God says, this is my son, listen to him. Can, does that remind you of any... Some of you know because we wrote articles about this and did uh, radio shows and so on. But what's the implication? This is my son, listen to him. He's the mediator who speaks for God. He's the one that Moses said that God will bring another prophet like Moses and when he does, listen to him. So Moses fades out of the picture and goes away. There's not going to be a tabernacle for Moses. There's not going to be a tabernacle for Elijah. They go away. The voice identifies the son as the one who speaks for God and who mediates for God. And only Jesus remains. And there was a cloud. Yeah, and that cloud would be an, a, 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 an allusion to the pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel around in the wilderness. So now the leading of the people of God into the promised land is going to be through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who speaks for God, who is the mediator of a better covenant. All of that is there in that story in the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and we've been talking about this kind of stuff in hermeneutics. But do you see how the better you know the Old Testament, the more the New Testament comes alive? I mean, you just see these implications. It's, it's just beautiful. So the point is that now that the glory of God has come in the person of Christ, no matter how great this wilderness wanderings may seem to us, because we're, we're thinking not so bright because they were all dying out there. You know, we might think, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could see the glory of God and if we saw miracles every day? Well, they did. They saw the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. They saw a miracle every morning. That manna, there's no natural explanation for it. And on, on, on the... Yeah, then you have the whole exodus and you have the, the Red Sea split, the water coming out of the rock. You have um, the manna lasting two days for Sabbath. Okay? There's no naturalistic explanation. They had everything you could want, and it says in Hebrews, and they died in unbelief. And so people come around and say, well, if we had more miracles, people would have faith. On what basis do you say that? It's like Luke 16. The guy, the rich man goes to Hades and, and Lazarus to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man wants to go. There's a chasm. He can't get out of there. And so he says, sorry, at least let me come back and warn my brothers. Uh, if I, I want to tell them about this Hades so that, they, so that they won't end up here too. And Jesus says, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they won't believe them, neither will they believe if a man comes back from the dead. And there's in there an implicit idea that Jesus would come back from the dead, he would be seen, and some people still wouldn't believe the truth. Well, even in that one, Jesus raised a physical Lazarus that the whole of Jerusalem knew. A man named Lazarus came out of the tomb, and the reaction of the high priest is they're going to kill Jesus and Lazarus because Lazarus was 
making too many people believe in Jesus. Absolutely. So they wouldn't believe in him even though they knew he was raised from the dead. That's absolutely true. So now you see the hardness of the human heart. Now the point here, the point that Paul is making is the point that we're making and we want to uh, emphasize is that we have the greater in Jesus. If we have the gospel and justification by faith, we have glory that's greater glory than came down on Sinai. We have a, a relationship with God that's closer than those people did when they could literally see the theophany and the fire and the smoke. This is greater. And any time we would take what we have as a small thing, as an unimportant thing, we are sinning and it's an affront to God. All right? So never, ever, ever belittle the importance of the blood atonement and justification by faith. Because there isn't something better out there. There, there isn't. There's nothing. There's no improvement. The only better is going to come at the resurrection when we actually see him face to face. Um, Mark, if you could look up Haggai 2, 7 through 9, and Dave, Philippians 3, 7 and 8. So the surpassing glory, our verse is this, for indeed that which had glory, that is the, the, the splendor that was reflected on Moses' face, in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. So the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory is seen in Jesus, and Moses fades away and goes away. They saw no man but Jesus. <laughs> I gave you an easy one to find, didn't I, Mark? Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I, quite, I haven't quite got to that in my study. <laughs> okay, Haggai hey, 2, 7 through 9. <laughs> I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So it talks about a latter glory that's greater than the former. What's that, what's that latter glory? Is it the latter rain movement? I heard that verse applied. Did you ever hear that verse quoted, Keith? I heard it. That was like our favorite verse. And the, and the latter, the glory of the latter house, when I was in the charismatic renewal in the 70s, was always something going on now because we had some better experience. And so the latter, the early house was the book of Acts, and the latter house was the, what we're doing now, which is the latter rain. And it came with the, all the silver and all the gold, which happened to be a nice tie-in verse that went with it. Yeah, and the silver and gold was money that people were going to give us. I think, well, the, in that case, he's talking about the true, I think it's the millennium. There's a glory of Jesus ultimately expressed in the millennium yeah. when yeah. he will reign truly over the entire world in his own civil government and all men and all nations will submit to them, will submit to the, the king, the true king. Yeah, as I, as I look at that verse now, I would say it applies to the millennium. Okay, Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Do you think that's literally true, that knowing Christ is of more value than everything else? Yeah, that's not hyperbole. That's literally true. 
It's harder. It's hard to see now, maybe. But as we grow in the grace and knowledge of God, I think we see it more all the time. That we have the one thing nobody can take away from us. You know, when we're young and we're full of expectations and hope, and you know, we're going to have a education, and we're going to have a career, and we have dreams of all the great things that we're going to do. It may seem that uh, this the Christianity. Well, okay, I guess I can see that. But you know, as you grow in the Lord you realize that no matter how great your accomplishments are, it really means nothing in the long run. But if you know Christ and help make Him known, that's of eternal value. And I'm not saying not to work hard or to be good citizens or to take care of your family or to get married or the things that people do. In fact, Diane, we were talking about that today. Um, um, she was pretty well useless here a few weeks ago, right? So I was taking care of her, and she finally started getting better. Now it's me, and she has to take care of me. And she says, what would we do if we were single? <laughs> I don't know. But so we kind of take care of each other. I can't even get a cup of coffee for myself. It's I've never had this experience. I think it shows you how helpless we really are. One little thing like a broken ankle and all the stuff you did just goes away. You can't do it. You just hope to hobble from one place to the next. So thank you for taking care of me. <laughs> All right. Philippians, no, uh, Lois, could you look up 2 Peter 1.17? But it is an interesting experience being helpless. But I think it should be an analogy that if we could just see that spiritually, we're all helpless. In fact, it says that. When we were helpless, Christ died for us. 2 Peter 1.17 For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Yeah, there's a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration there or perhaps the baptism because that happened there too where the voice from heaven declared Jesus to be the beloved Son. And so that was that passage. Let's go to verse 11 then. We have a continuation of our lesser to greater argument here. We have the same logical construction. If, then much more. All right? For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Now, here the contrast is between impermanence and permanence. So the old covenant glory faded away. Now we're talking about the glory on Moses' face because the next section is going to be about the veil. There's a whole section about the veil and there's an analogical argument going on. So the Old Testament glory faded away. If, if the glory was still on Sinai, somebody could find Sinai. I mean, there's been some people claim to find Sinai. There's a question about where it is. But the glory is obviously not there. Or you could fly over an airplane until you saw it. Right? So it faded away. But the glory that remains doesn't fade. Now, what does that mean? I think that right there would, would show that these claims of uh, present-day theophanies are false. Because even those fade away. Even the supposed great revivals eventually go away. So the new covenant glory doesn't go, go away. It never, ever fades. It's totally permanent. So how can it be permanent? Well, because it's in Christ, and Christ 
the glorified Christ, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back again. And his glory cannot fade because it's a part of his essential nature. That Jesus Christ is, is, read the definition of Chalcedon. Lately, some people have been asking me questions about the doctrine of Christ, and I'm glad people care about that. One of the most important doctrines we can know is the doctrine of Christ. And the early church wrestled with these things because heretics were saying he was a created being. They were trying to understand the nature of the Trinity. And I don't discount the importance of those things. And so probably the most full-blown expression in church history, as far as one that was accepted, was the definition of Chalcedon. And there it, it describes using the best understanding we can have of the biblical material, the relationship between the members of the Trinity, Jesus Christ as the glorified one, and in what sense does he share oneness in essence with the Father, but yet there's two persons. How is he uniquely man and God? It talks about the hypostatic union. And so in the sense that Jesus is God, who exists from all eternity, the doctrine of the glory of God also applies to Christ. He's glorious by nature because he has essential deity as his nature. All right? And so it's permanent because it's tied to his nature and not just to his work. The work of Christ reveals glory. It reveals compassion. The, the Mount of Transfiguration revealed glory. But Christ's glory is part of his essential nature as God. So therefore, it's permanent. He didn't gain it at his baptism. He didn't, gain it. He didn't lose it at his crucifixion. He didn't gain it at his resurrection. And he didn't gain it in his ascension. He always had this glory. Transfiguration was like God drawing back the curtain so people could literally see it so that they know it was true. He was always glorious. It was veiled in the sense of his human flesh as he went about as a human, but he was always the glorious son. So the Mo Moses wasn't essentially glorious. Moses' glory was reflected off of his face. And that was a fading glory. Paul actually implies, I was reading some theological material, in this argument, Paul actually argues that not, not only was the veil there because the people couldn't stand to look, the veil veiled the fact that it was fading. That's, that's what some of these scholars are saying. We'll, we'll look at it as we read about the veil and see if that's a valid implication. But the, the glory of Christ doesn't fade. All right? It's permanent. So if you're interested in glory, um, then you want to come to know Christ. Now let's look at the phrase in the Greek, fades away, that which fades away. The, the Greek word here, is katargumenon, katargumenon, that which fades away, present, passive, participle, participle, singular, neuter. Now, why am I telling you all that? Because the same word, because you knew that, you knew that, right? <laughs> no, there, there's a theological reason, or I wouldn't bother you with it. The same word, katargumenon, is used in verse 7, and in verse 7, it says, His face fading as it was. Fading as it was. 
But in verse 7, it's the same construction, only it's feminine. So we have a neuter participle. Participles are very much integral to the Greek language. They're used continually, way more than we use them in English. And I'd use them more if Dick didn't always red pen them out. It's a good thing you didn't have a job to edit the New Testament, Dick. See, the overuse of participles means you've been reading too many theology books. So anyhow, but participles are often not translated into English because it would be too cumbersome. But a participle is a verb that actually acts like uh, an adjective. So in the Greek, not only does it have a verb tense, present passive, but it also has um, the singular neuter, which would be the adjective agrees with the noun that is modifying. So by looking at these uh, declensions of conjugations, you can see what noun is likely being modified. Okay? So in the case of the first use of this word, feminine, it was modifying glory. It was fading glory. But here, it's in the neuter, so it can't be talking about glory. That which fades away is probably the Mosaic covenant. So this old covenant is what's fading away, because that would be in the neuter. So that which fades away is the entire old covenant. And that which remains in permanent glory is Christ, who is the head of the new covenant in the, and who is uh, instituted the new covenant. And the new covenant is in his blood, which will always be efficacious to remove sin. The new, the new covenant glory, the new covenant glory is eternal because Christ is eternal. And we are being transformed. Let's look ahead here. We're about out of time. Let's look ahead to 2 Corinthians 3.18 because this is where Paul's going. And it's going to take us some weeks to get there. So I want you to sort of see the, the capstone uh, of his argument here. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Here's what it says. But we all, that is those under the new covenant by faith, but we all... With unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So the point is the new covenant believer is gazing figuratively through the eyes of faith at the glory of the Lord in the person of Christ, And the Holy Spirit, who removed the veil, is transforming us into that image from glory to glory. And the veil is removed. Whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Absolutely. That's what conversion is about. It's about pulling the veil off. You know, and when we're thinking about it as we witness... And and by the way, I I was uh, not... I was... Friday's the day I broke my ankle, but... um, Friday night they had the, the teaching on evangelism. And Saturday they went out and did it. And I've heard glowing reports. I guess people had a great time sharing the gospel. And remember this as, as we're sharing the gospel. To, to what's, what is so obvious to us, the evidence for God's existence, the fact that evolution's a lie, things don't evolve and get better and better by their nature, you know, that Jesus really was raised from the dead and that there's so much evidence for it, and that the Bible is so true and so superior to all religious literature. They're obvious to us. Remember that it's obvious to us 
Not, it really is obvious, but there's a spiritual veil of darkness keeping people from seeing the obvious. Okay? And so that's going to take the Holy Spirit to convert sinners to take that veil off. All right? And so as you're witnessing to people, yes, answer the questions, tell them the truth, tell them the facts, be a good witness, and do the things that you were trained to do Friday night. But remember that it's God that takes the veil off, not us. And when he does, people will behold the glory of the Lord in the gospel. So, uh, let, we'll be meeting. Ryan's preaching today. We have communion. Um, help take the chairs down. We'll see you upstairs at 1030.